and welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nikia Anani and I'm your host. This week in the host seat, I'm joined by Yindi Gesinde, who is a partner at Baker McKenzie, a law firm based in London, in the dispute resolution team. So I invited her over to pick her brains on the whole world of trusts. So continuing on from the conversation, the episode with Rochelle Clark, which was on planned disruption, business continuity and succession. That was episode number 53. If you haven't checked that out, I'd recommend listening to that after this one. And really just thinking from, that was very much from an operational perspective, managing the business, managing the assets. This is very much from a legal perspective. What are the things we should be thinking about? How do we manage things like trusts? And Yindi's really schooling us on trust 101. So I'd encourage you to listen in, enjoy, and please share the love. Share the love in your networks, leave a comment, and enjoy. Thank you so much. Hi, Yindi. Welcome. Welcome to The Connected Generation. Thanks, Nikkei. It's really great to be with you today. Yes, I'm excited about this conversation. Me too. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So you're a partner in a law firm. How did you get to where you are today? Tell us more about Yindi. Well, going all the way back to the beginning, I'm Nigerian (laughs) by heritage. The name Yindi is actually a contraction of Oyindamola. My oh, mum's family. Really? Are, yeah, yeah. I my didn't mum's, okay. Yeah. <laughs> my mum's family are from Austin State originally, oh. and my dad's from Oyo State. So all of my extended family now in Nigeria now live in Lagos in Ibadan. But I actually was born in Dublin in Ireland, randomly. When I grew up in the UK, <laughs> my parents, they left Nigeria and they were doing some postgrad studies in Ireland, and that's where I was born. So I actually carry an Irish passport as well as a Nigerian passport. So post-Brexit, I'm feeling pretty smug that I should be able to (laughs) get around the EU. But yeah, I went to school in Leeds in the north of England, and Mm -hmm. I did my law degree and my post-grad legal course in the Midlands in Warwick and then Nottingham, respectively. And then I moved to London in 2008. And yeah, I joined the London office of the international law firm Baker McKenzie. Mm. And I made partner last year, very excitingly. Awesome. And I sit in the dispute resolution team. And I'm also a member of the Global Compliance Investigations Practice. But one of my focuses in terms of dispute resolution is private wealth dispute. Mm-hmm. So I advise high net worth individuals, beneficiaries of trusts, trustees, and any other third parties really who are connected to trusts and really in relation to disputes that arise out of them. Mm. Also on how to avoid disputes which might stem from private wealth and family businesses. Mm. On that, disputes, conflicts are part of life. What common types of disputes do you see your your clients having? Well, it's a good question. I mean, it does touch a bit on the discussion you had with Rochelle Clark on your mm-hmm. last episode, which was really great. And I'll do my best not to get too legal, so please stop me if I do. But <laughs> in terms of typical scenarios that might arise, I mean, you talked about with Rochelle the unexpected death of a family patriarch and that can often trigger issues from a trust situation so at that point a member of the patriarch's family might discover that they and their family members are what is known as the beneficiaries of a trust so it either it may not be a new discovery they may always have been aware that there was this sort of trust in the background without truly understanding what it meant for them or Mm. in particular for the family business which the patriarch may have founded Or it might come as a complete surprise. We have situations where, for various reasons, the patriarch has chosen to try and keep the trust a secret and has managed to do so. Mm. And unfortunately, disputes, they might arise between the different family members who are 
different beneficiaries under that trust or quite commonly between the family members as beneficiaries and the trustee who actually manages the trust. And before I get ahead of myself, I should just explain for those who don't know in its most basic terms what a trust actually is. Mm-hmm. And essentially, it's a relationship. It's a relationship between the person who originally put the assets in a trust. And in this situation, I'm talking about it will be the family patriarch who mm-hmm. may have put the shares in the family business into trust or the ownership of the family home. Mm-hmm. And by putting something to trust, you're basically giving the legal control of that asset to another person or another entity mm-hmm. who are known as the trustee. And historically, that may have been close family friend of the patriarch or maybe mm-hmm. one of their advisors mm-hmm. but more commonly these days it might be a professional trust company or a private trust company the directors of which might themselves be the patriarch's close friends or advisors mm-hmm. and the issues arise because as I say the trustee is essentially the legal owner of whatever assets the patriarch has put into trust once the patriarch puts those assets into trust they are no longer the owner mm-hmm. but despite this the family may not realize that's the arrangement because the patriarch may have continued to act for all intents and purposes as though they were, for example, the sole shareholder of the company or Mm. the only owner of the assets. And this is where the confusion and the issues often arise for the family. And and the final piece of that is that while the trustee is the legal owner of the assets, they may hold those assets for benefit of the people the patriarch has chosen to benefit from those assets. Mm -hmm. And commonly that will be the patriarch's spouse, their children, their grandchildren, maybe certain charities. But again, you can have situations where the patriarch has left certain family members out. You have similar situations in wills. And the issue can arise where no one who is entitled to benefit under the trust actually has any fixed entitlement. And actually the trustee can decide who gets what. Mm -hmm. And so they essentially get to choose who is entitled to certain assets. And it can be tricky. So One beneficiary might need money to buy a house. One Mm -hmm. might need school fees for a child. One might need money for a medical procedure. And the trustee will have to decide how best to distribute the assets. And they have to do it with everybody's interests in mind. Mm -hmm. And often with families, as we know, not everyone's interests may be aligned. And I think just from the family business perspective, the issue is that if the trustee is the owner of the company, ultimately, either directly or through a series of other companies, you may have a situation where they have a right to essentially interfere Mm. in the business of the company. In fact, they may be obligated to because of what the trust documents say. Mm. Again, you have a deceased family patriarch who's kind of previously run the business very, very closely, a family who are grieving and trying to figure out, as you talked about with Rochelle, what next and business continuity Mm And then a trustee who also has a role and will have some say in what happens as well. So as you can imagine, that can lead to lots of issues. Wow. There's a lot there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> from the secrecy of the existence of the trust, which will be a huge shock whilst grieving to find out, oh, okay, firstly, we might not even know what we owned until mum mm. or dad passed away. And then you're finding out from the trustee that you're a beneficiary of this trust and this own sport, what have you, Yeah. to the responsibility and decision-making um, discretion, is the word I'm looking for, being given to the trustee to make decisions on whether Johnny's getting a house or Funke is getting mm. assistance with her business. So based on that, what risks do you see in such situation and what steps can family businesses actually take to further protect themselves? if 
they find themselves in that situation. I'm a next gen. Mm. Unfortunately, my mum or dad passed away and now I'm a beneficiary. How can I protect myself as a beneficiary and enforce what rights do I have as a beneficiary? Yeah, it's a really great question. Really great question. And often one that beneficiaries have when they're presented with this situation. And I think, you know, what I should preface this with saying is that this is quite a generic overview and every trust will be different. I think it's really important to, like you say, just try to understand what rights do I have? Things as basic as who is the trustee and what are their obligations? There are various things that the trustee will be required to do, depending on, for example, the law that applies to the trust. And so that's a really important thing to find out. But before all of that, I would generally suggest just trying to start a dialogue and open those lines of communication with the trustee, just to understand all of those issues, understand why it was that you weren't informed before, if there was a good reason for that. Maybe there wasn't a good reason. It may come down to how much of an interest you actually have in the trust, which will determine how much the trustee needs to tell you. So I would just start with communication. It's just really the bedrock of so much I'll talk about today. As I said at the start of this, you know, a trust is essentially a relationship. And as we know, every good relationship needs good communication. So that would be my first tip for a sort of next gen who finds themselves in this situation. Mm. And of course, I would say, obtain legal advice about your position if you need to. <laughs> but I would say that. <laughs> yeah, no, really useful to say so, because quite often people think that the technical side should be sufficient to address the succession or the estate planning, but we can't have the technical without the interpersonal behavioral stuff. It's when we have a marriage of, yes, you have this great structure and great communication, clarity and collaboration that we're really able to protect all family members. So for those that aren't necessarily in this horrible situation where they've lost a family member, but do have a trust or are thinking of having a trust, what steps can they take to protect the family business and the family wealth from a legal perspective? Yeah, thanks for asking. I mean, I think it's important to step back and and think about, well, why is it that patriarchs choose to go down this route when I've given the impression it creates all this strife? And that absolutely isn't the case. Um, There are lots of reasons why trusts are chosen. For example, tax planning reasons. Mm. If you have family members who are spread across the globe, it can be a really efficient way to manage the family's assets and wealth. They can really help to preserve wealth. Also, asset protection. As I mentioned, when you put assets into a trust, you're putting them out of the patriarch's estate. So actually, it means that there is some protection from those assets for issues that might arise as and when the patriarch does sadly pass away. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also a good way to maintain privacy, confidentiality. And it's a good way also to limit the access of family members to family wealth too soon. Often we see that families actually really want their children to forge a path of their own without too many of the trappings of wealth. So those are some of the reasons why trust can be established. And for those who are not in the situation I've talked about, I think things to think about. My team works very closely with lawyers in our wealth management group, and we all help families and family firms to mitigate their global tax exposure, which I've talked about, advise them on state and business succession. And that's where, as I say, a trust can be a really valuable asset to have, a really valuable tool to use. We also advise about governance issues. So I think governance of family businesses is so important. And it's something, again, that you talked about with Rochelle. But again, when you have a family patriarch who is very closely involved in the business, they may do everything. And so it may be that corporate governance just doesn't really come into it. 
And that can be a real mistake because it goes to the point of business continuity. Having good habits in place early when it comes to governance, who is entitled to do what, how do we run this business is so, so key. And in addition, understanding succession planning, issues can again arise when the patriarch has maybe groomed one family member in particular to take over that hasn't really socialized that with the rest of the family. And so again, if things happen, someone passes away or they're incapacitated, again, you suddenly have a dispute because the family hasn't talked to each other beforehand about what was going to happen. Mm. So I think thinking about how best can we protect our wealth and what can we do, what structures can we put in place to do that is a really good thing for next gen to think about. Mm. And that's so helpful. You spoke about one of the reasons why founders set up trust is for not wanting their children to be exposed to the trappings of wealth, so to speak. And you also mentioned some common reasons also why founders set up trusts. Speaking specifically to founders, what advice would you give to them during their lifetimes as they're setting up trusts? How can they ensure that they don't create a situation that would create conflict in the future in their absence? Obviously, they're setting up this trust for the welfare of the family, right? But how can they set this up such that we're not just seeing a technical transfer of the beneficial ownership from founder to the next generation, but actually seeing that we have strong united family as well? It's a really good question. I think the first thing I'd say is understand what limitations you will have after you create a trust. We often see situations where patriarch settles a trust, but then stays very, very closely involved and acts as though for all intents and purposes, they still own the assets. And I think if you're going to instruct a professional trust company, for example, trust them to do their job with Mm -hmm. that element of objectivity, which I think that they can bring to the situation. And then let them know what your aims and objectives are. And often when people settle trust, what they do is write what's known as a letter of wishes. Mm -hmm. And they set out what they would ideally like to see the trustee do. And it isn't binding because as I say, the trustee can make their own decisions, but being clear with the trustees about what it is that you're expecting and hoping for is really good. And if you feel willing, share that with the family so that they are clear on what you're planning on. And that won't be right for every situation because trusts are, they're confidential and that's also why patriarchs like to use them. But if you want to try and avoid conflict, as I say, communication is key. So communicating your wishes to your trustee and also to the family so that they understand why you're doing this and what you hope for the future so that everyone is clear from the outset on what direction they're all pulling in. I often find that a number of next gens say this whole world of trust is complicated. How can you, especially when you think of different jurisdictions or different options for trustees, do you go with a trusted friend? A family member? Do you go with a law firm? Do you go with a fiduciary company? Do you go onshore? Do you go offshore? What advice do you have for such people? How do you break this whole world down into a simpler? Yeah. I'd say think about what it is you're trying to achieve. What are your driving aims? Mm -hmm. If it's tax efficiency, there are certain jurisdictions that are better for that. If it is to involve certain people, then that may be a situation where a family friend as a trustee can be a really great thing to have. Or there's also another role you can have, which is a protector, who's almost like an advisor to the trustee. And that can be a great role for a family friend or someone who understands the family's dynamics. So you're right, it can be very complicated. But before you even get to that stage, I'd say 
sit back and think, okay, what are we aiming to achieve? What is most important to us? Mm-hmm. And then from there, you can work with advisors to figure out, well, what is best for you from an offshore, onshore perspective? Who would be the best person for this? Lots of different jurisdictions that we work with have different benefits, particularly the offshore ones. Places like Bermuda, Cayman, the BVI isn't just about the climate. They have really established and sophisticated trust regimes that can help families with these sorts of dilemmas. So I'd say as a starting point, just try and work out what it is you're trying to achieve and go from there. Awesome. Why are you so passionate about what you do? Why did you choose to become a lawyer? Well, I think it's a great question. I mean, I think for most female lawyers, I'm sure that they were told at one point, oh, you're argumentative and you talk a lot, you should be a lawyer. So, you know, I was pushed (laughs) in that direction quite early on. But no, I am really passionate about what I do. I mean, often when it comes to legal disputes, but especially private wealth disputes, you're dealing at the very core with relationships and often relationship breakdowns, unfortunately. And this just really fascinates me. And the people I've worked for or come across doing my private wealth disputes work have been some of the most complex fascinating and challenging people and at the heart of so much of this work is families mm-hmm. and people for whom in one way or another their wealth or their family business it's a risk of becoming a source of discontent and that's a really awful thing so while I'm not trying to moonlight as a family therapist or family counsellor mm-hmm. the work that I and my colleagues do can really contribute to healing family rifts or preventing them from even occurring mm-hmm. and helping people to move forward together and I think that is what really sets these sorts of disputes apart from disputes between corporates, for example. But at the end of all this, the individuals involved will continue being each other's family. And you have to be really mindful of that. But beyond that, in terms of other passions, I mean, I'm really lucky to be at a firm that's so international. And pre-COVID, I travelled a lot with work. I think I mentioned before, you know, I've had quite a lot of varied experience at Bakers. I mean, I've been with the firm for almost 13 years, but I've worked in our Washington DC office. I've worked in our Hong Kong office three times and been able to comment to two different clients. And so although I've been in one place basically since I started my career, I feel as though I've had about six different jobs during that time. And I also wear a lot of hats at Baker McKenzie. So I, for example, I sit on the firm's Global Africa Steering Committee. So I'm responsible with the other steering committee members for driving the firm's Global Africa strategy. And that encompasses the offices that we have in Africa. It also addresses our ways of working in the rest of the region where we don't have offices on the ground. But, Mm -hmm. for example, we work very closely with really great local firms to advise clients because there is so much opportunity Mm. on the continent. And it's just so exciting to be part of helping people to realise that and tap into it, really. And then separately, I also co-chair the London Office's um, employee network for Black, Asian and ethnic minority employees. I also sit on the firm's Global Africa Steering Committee. So I'm responsible with the other steering committee members for driving the global firm's Africa strategy. And that encompasses our offices in the region, but also addresses our ways of working in the rest of the region where we don't have offices on the ground, but we work very closely with really great local firms to advise clients. And there is just so much opportunity on the continent, as you know, and I'm just really excited to help the firm tap into that opportunity. And I also co-chair the London Office's employee network for Black, Asian and minority ethnic employees to mm. the Baker Ethnicity. And I find that really rewarding. I'm very passionate about seeing the next generation come through. It's no secret that the legal industry, particularly in the UK, still has a diversity problem. It's yeah. trying to solve. I'm just really passionate about that and about 
coming through as a black female partner in the city. I read somewhere the other week that I think I'm one of 20 or 30 black women partners in in the top 20 firms in London. So there's a long way to go. And it's really nice to be part of this kind of group. But I'm hoping that it expands over the next few years. That's exciting. And are you excited about the future? Definitely, definitely. I think from a personal perspective, in the UK, we were just given a few days ago a roadmap out of our current COVID a lockdown. Release. Yes, <laughs> a release date. But but more than that, I mean, from a work perspective, I'm excited about the prospects of the future of next gens and high net worth individuals in Africa. And mm-hmm. so excited about what people like you and the work that African Family Firms is doing, supporting that next generation of business owners and entrepreneurs coming through to make sure that they're savvy about protecting family wealth and ensuring that it does flow down to the next generations, which has been such a problem historically. Mm. So I'm really excited about providing support and advice in any way that I can along the way. Incredible. And I'm excited about people like yourselves out in the diaspora of African origin in the professional fields, because you're able to be champions in your companies. A lot of the time, corporate out in Europe, in Northern America, don't understand how we do business in Africa. And Mm. many family businesses face issues of KYC, reputation management, and there's a presumption we're automatically classified as high-risk jurisdictions. So we're often sidelined from being able to be onboarded onto great companies and get professional advice. Or even when you're in there, there's really a lack of understanding of how business is done on the continent. So having advocates like yourself that really are African origin and actually visit the continent and understand the culture, understand the business, you're like our evangelists in Baker McKenzie. And so we need more advisory from professionals like yourself. We need more support from people like yourself. And I love the fact that you've got partners on the ground, boots on the ground on the continent as well. Mm. So... It's an exciting time. Definitely. I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. I think with the uneducated or the uninitiated, the word Africa, for instance, like, okay, well, that's high risk. and We can't mm-hmm. go there. Or alternatively, and even more damagingly, oh, well, that's high risk. We can just do what we want and it doesn't really matter. Yep. And both approaches are so yep. dangerous. And so, yeah, it's really important to educate international companies who are looking to make inroads and and achieve opportunities in Africa what it means Africa is not one country it is made of it's a continent it's made of 54 very diverse countries very diverse regions and it's really important to understand how that works and especially with what's happened in the world over the past year five years ten years Africa is the place to look to for this opportunity and so yeah I'm really passionate about educating people a not to be afraid but be not to be ignorant and to go in there without really understanding what you're doing. And that's where, you know, like you say, having people on the ground and having really great relationships with other practitioners on the ground is so important. That's really the kind of ethos of our firm. It's always been not just to parachute, you know, American, British, mm-hmm. Australian lawyers into places, but to really have local people mm-hmm. understand the local market, the local culture. And that is so key because Rather than looking at the risks and challenges, I really encourage clients to look at the wealth of opportunities that exist there. And there are so Mm. many of them. Really, indeed. That's been amazing. If anyone wants to get in touch with you, Yindi, how can they reach you? They can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on there. Also, 
on our Baker McKenzie website and generally yes anywhere where you're looking for um, advice about Africa I'm sort of popping up here there and everywhere at the moment so awesome thank you so much no problem it's been really great to talk to you today oh that was so insightful Yindi really knows her stuff she's a very smart lady and I'm coming back to where we ended at and that was the role of the diaspora in propelling this industry forward and I'm very much of the opinion that diasporans, whether you are a business owner, you're an ex-gen, you're based out in wherever you are, or you don't even have a family business and you're a professional, you are critical because you're evangelists. You're shaping people around you in terms of their perspective on the continent because you have a real reference point. And I think it's just so critical. I also love that Yindi spoke about healing family rifts, that a lot of these legal structures cannot achieve that. So we cannot have the legal structuring in absence of really nurturing the family unit. We have to really work on building bonds, healthy bonds within the family. So don't just think, oh, we've got this trust sorted and so we're sorted. No, we must continue to have conversations, collective conversations on what we want from our family business and from our family wealth. And I'll ask you this question, which I'd love for you to think about, stew on and have conversations in your families. What is the compelling reason for us to stay in business together as a family? What is the compelling reason to stay investing together as a family? You're not going to have that answer in one hour. (laughs) It would take several sessions to unpack to unload but I tell you what it will give you strong sense of clarity strong sense of purpose and identity as a family thank you so much for tuning in as always take care and god bless you <laughs>